Hello, thank you for joining us for our fourth episode of our podcast series, People Talk. Just a reminder about what we wanted to do on these podcasts. We really want to bring you the practical advice in relation to leading or working in the people area of the business, um, rather than simply talking about employment law. And we've certainly got a practical issue to talk about today. So I'm Karen Bates. I lead the employment team here, and I'm really fortunate to be joined by two guest speakers today talking about right to work checks so carrying out compliant checks the things to look out for the pitfalls what the risks are of not doing it properly and really the full rundown of all the options for you as a business so i'm joined by Gemma robinson Gemma is a senior associate in our team she has a huge amount of experience advising on business immigration right from the more complex cases through to the straightforward queries that we have about right to work checks so she'll certainly be able to give us some good information today And also we have our guest speaker, Tony Machin. Tony is CEO for Trust ID, a government approved identity service provider. Tony has been the CEO of Trust ID since 2013. In 2018, together with a group of like-minded identity validation experts, Tony founded the Association of Document Validation Professionals, ADVP, and is the association's current chair. So we're very lucky to have Tony with us today and grateful for his time. So let's launch in. Um, I just wanted to start by recapping what the options are for compliant right to work checks. Gemma, how would you describe those current options for employers? I would say that's kind of identified into three main areas. So you have what is manual, online, and then an IDSP. So taking those just quickly in turn. So you've got manual, that really essentially means getting an original acceptable document from one of the lists from the right to work guidance under list A or B checking that these are genuine and keeping appropriate records of that document uh, when the check is made. You've got online checks, which means asking prospective employees for their share code, which now must begin with that W at the front. So giving that code basically to their prospective employer. And then that employer can now put that code into the online uh, right to work check with their date of birth. And that will come up with a kind of profile page. And they can then check that profile page is the identity of the individual either in person or via most in common circumstances via a video link now that they'll check that and then retain a copy of that profile page. And then the last one is the identity service provider option, which we're going to spend a bit of time on today and um, thankfully joined by Tony to also provide some insights on that. And that's about carrying out a digital right to work check on behalf of the employer by an identity service provider um, relating to British and Irish nationals who hold a valid passport. So I don't know much about IDSPs and I, I think probably some of our listeners won't know a huge amount about them. So what is an IDSP and how long has that been an option? Um, yeah, so an IDSP is essentially a provider of ID verification services in a sense. And since around April 2022, employers have been able to use the digital identity documentation validation technology to carry out these identity checks on behalf of British and Irish citizens who hold a valid passport. And it's through the services of the IDSP that they can do that. And provided they use that service correctly, then the employer will then continue to have a statutory excuse to a civil penalty. But in reality, it wasn't really until around June time of last year, so 2022, when the government released the first kind of government approved IDSPs and Trust ID was one of those first certified digital service providers um, that was authorised by the government. I don't know, Tony, if it's helpful for you to just give an insight as to kind of how 
you became certified as Trust ID and the process for that? Yeah, it is quite simple. The first thing you need to do is choose a certifying body, of which there are five certifying bodies that come and carry out the assessment. Once you've chosen your certifying body, um, they will carry out a series of both remote and on-site audits around your systems. Now, obviously, a lot of that is already kind of confirming things like you are IS2701, for example, um, which most IDSPs will be. And then they really get into the real key differential, which is on this certification, which is around the uh, levels of confidence that GPT-45 stipulates. And each scheme, and for the right-to-work scheme, it is a medium level of confidence. And therefore, as an IDSP, you have to demonstrate to your certifying body that the technology you deploy does indeed actually validate identity documents and do identity verification to a medium level of confidence. The certification lasts for two years, but in the interim year, you do get a supervisory visit. So we have had our supervisory visit after our first anniversary, and we will be having a full recertification in the summer of next year. Thank you. Yeah, and I think it's probably important just to flag here that although it's not mandatory for employers to use a certified IDSP for their right to work checks, the Home Office do recommend that one of their certified IDSPs are used. Um, Trust ID obviously being one of the currently, I think, 47 now on the list of certified IDSPs that you can use. And so although it's not part of this session, it's also helpful just to point out that IDSPs, including Trust ID, can also be used for right to rent and DBS checks to assist employers with those types of checks as well. Just a quick comment on that, Gemma. On the list of those 47, not all are certified for right to work and right to rent, even though they fit under the list of um, certified for right to rent and right to work. Um, so it is really important that you check that they are certified for what you're looking for. So it could be right to work and DBS, or it could just be right to work. Tony, what happens if a British national provides the IDSP with an expired passport? So you cannot use an expired passport and the current digital scheme. For us, for example, if somebody um, is sent a guest link for a remote check, which is what, how it has to happen, the, the first thing we ask them, or one of the first questions, is your passport in date? If they say no to that, um, then we actually send them a message that unfortunately they cannot proceed with a digital scheme check and that they have to contact their potential employer and do a physical document check instead. Oh, I see. So Gemma, in that scenario, what can the employer do next? Yeah, so I think in that scenario, it's just trying to ensure that there's no discrimination risks in a sense. And so you're making sure that if the individual can't use the expired passport through the IDSP that you've got, then actually you're giving them other options to provide their right to work, i.e. getting the actual original document through a manual check for their um, expired passport, because this would be an acceptable document under the manual option. On that IDSP piece, because we can't do it digitally, one thing that people ought to be very aware of is that there is an increase in people saying they have out-of-date British passports because they know they won't be subject to the robust digital checks that we carry out in the hope that they can turn up to the employer and show a HR administrator, for example, it's an out-of-date passport. And in that case, of course, not using technology in many instances to then check the validity of that document. We as an organisation do do that and support hiring managers with document checks should they be forced to go down the physical document route because, of course, that is a weakness in the system that illegal workers are trying to exploit. Yeah, good for employers to be aware of that, definitely. And I guess that leads us into thinking about if an employer is weighing up whether they want to carry on doing these checks themselves or thinking about engaging an IDSP, 
what would the business think about in terms of what are the main benefits of working with an IDSP? Um, yeah, I'm happy to start with what I think the benefits are. Um, I think that piece that Tony's just mentioned about, you know, helping to fight fraud. An IDSP has ultimately been rigorously checked and approved by the government. So they are trusted in order to be able to digitally verify the documentation that they're seeing. And therefore using that IDSP absolutely helps to tackle fraud within the immigration system for migrants that are potentially looking to put fraudulent documents in front of employers. But I suppose in my experience with clients, the reason that they have engaged an IDSP has been more around the idea of speed, especially with, you know, the post-Brexit world and remote working. You know, we have many clients now that are engaging people that are nowhere near an office. They're going to be working from home. And actually to originally see a passport from a British or Irish national is actually just going to cause delays. And whether that individual is having to, you know, train, car ride to the office or ultimately sending that securely, it's going to cause delays. And therefore, the engagement of an IDSP is certainly seeing the acceleration of those kind of recruitment onboarding processes. I mean, literally, you can have a result back once the candidate has uploaded the required document and taken a selfie. I mean, the employer can have a check back within seconds if everything goes smoothly. Um, once they've uploaded it and it's come to us, if it hasn't come back to the hiring manager or the potential employer within 10 to 20 seconds, that generally means there's something wrong. And that means it'll have come to us, therefore, for a, a manual check. And that might be something as simple as the facial biometrics. And if they've taken a, their selfie in slight darkness, whilst we have mechanisms to try and control that, there's a threshold. And if it comes below that threshold, we will manually inspect. And in those instances, um, we always kind of give a, an SLA of, of getting a response back uh, within an hour. And that is between eight o'clock in the morning and midnight, seven days a week. So if people are employing over the weekend, they will still get that response back. So how would employers go about choosing a good IDSP to work with? From my experience, um, kind of pulling on from what Tony said earlier about understanding what you actually are looking for that IDSP service to provide, because they can provide right to work services and right to work checks. But in addition, some of them can also provide DBS checks and right to rent and other kind of certified services. So understanding what you need as a business and what your IDSP can offer and kind of ideally having one that can offer everything for that streamlined service for your kind of candidates, I think is probably really important as a first step if um, employers are looking at that government approved list. It's then going to be starting to think about price, how other business is going to be invoiced for that service. Is it going to be based on volume? Is it going to be based on fixed pricing? Is it charged per price? And then also, is it easy to use? You know, you want an easy experience for your candidates coming into your organisation. Yeah, I think you've covered most of the key ones there, Gemma. I think just going back to the ease of use, there are two aspects to the ease of use. Again, depending on what service it is you're trying to engage with the IDSP, there's the ease of use for the candidate. If you're only, only using an IDSP for the digital checks for UK and Irish, that's fine. But if you're using IDSPs to cover the whole range of those three right-to-work checks you could do, digital, the online and manual, then actually the ease of use of hiring managers is also, and maybe shared service HR teams is also important. And one of the benefits that comes out of that ease of use, that often people don't take into, into account, is the whole training cost and internal cost that often comes to certainly large organisations that are distributed across the country. Retailers, for example, will be an example of this. And if it's easy to use the hiring managers as well as the candidates, 
then you're reducing training requirements and training needs. And one of the interesting differentials in there is, does the supplier require the candidate to download an app or can it all be cloud-based technology? And that's a really interesting differential. And some have come very much that you must download an app. Other services are cloud-based. And then lastly, the other piece to take into consideration when doing it is, is how is it delivered? Can it be delivered as a standalone platform, as a system, in which case it could literally be delivered in days if it's cloud-based? Or do you want to integrate it? And, and understanding can your supplier do integrations and have got the APIs is another consideration if you want to integrate it in, say, into your ATS platform. So, Tony, it'd be good, I think, for listeners to know a little bit about what does the onboarding process look like and, and just a rough idea on sort of costs if people are thinking about this. Yeah, so for the Trust ID model, the first thing is, is it going to be standalone or API? That dictates the onboarding process to a certain degree in terms of timescales. If somebody wants a standalone system, then the process is really, you know, confirming the product, you know, do you want DBS with your right to work checks or not? If so, what level? So understanding all that. Once we've agreed that, we'll go into pricing. And then once we've got the pricing, we'll send out a license agreement. And once that's signed, we're literally going to have the client operational within a week. Um, so it's really, really quick on a standalone. It's exactly the same service in terms of the API, in, you know, and we are integrated into nearly 40 ATS platforms. And that timescale is really dictated by the ATS provider. So that's a conversation you should have with your ATS provider if you want a fully integrated solution. But the process is exactly the same in terms of you know, going through the product definition, pricing, and the license agreement. In terms of pricing, there is no pricing differential at all between standalone and ATS. You simply buy credits from us in advance. The bigger the batch of credits, the cheaper the price per check. And there are no other costs. There are no costs for integration. There's no user licenses. There is no training. There's nothing. They literally buy the credits. And that can range from our highest price is £3.50 if you want to buy 100 checks from us checks last for two years from the date that you purchase them. And so for the smaller clients who may be not doing mass recruitment, that might be a problem. And we have lots of clients buy 100 checks from us. At the other end, you know, we have clients who buy 100,000 checks from us and those will be priced, uh, you know, significantly below £2. I wouldn't want to quote a number, but, you know, you're talking somewhere between the £1.30 to £1.60, depending on products and things like that. So you can see there's a big discounts come for big volumes. And obviously, there's a scale in between those two extremes. £3.50 at one end, kind of lowest end, £1.35, £1.40. So that's upfront. You're paying for those amount of checks upfront for that cost. You're not paying as you go as such. No. So most clients will buy us for all three right to work checks. They won't just buy us for digital. And if you want to do uh, manual and you want to do share codes, then there is a degree of eligibility checks, which we always carry out. So we're not just doing validation. When it's outside the digital scheme, we're also doing eligibility checks. So we have to obviously staff a help desk for that. And I say we man that help desk from eight o'clock in the morning till midnight, seven days a week. So our business model is always by, by advance. Now, some clients will buy two years worth to get the cheapest possible price per check because actually cash is not an issue for them. Other clients will buy literally three or 400 checks every month. The accounting and the, the administration and everything else involved in doing retrospective checking is just something that just adds cost and complications. So before we get into the detail of what can go wrong, which is mainly you, Gemma, talking about problems if right-to-work checks are not done properly... Tony, what's one of the main reasons why somebody might choose, say, Trust ID compared to one of the other IDSPs? Well, I think, you know, as Gemma was touching on earlier, 
you know, in terms of that selection process around ease of use and cost. Because at the end of the day, when it comes to the digital part, all of us are doing a similar thing. Whether we're doing it on an app or cloud is probably the big differential. We are asking a candidate to take a, a selfie and upload a document. That's not complicated stuff. It's what sits behind it. What happens when it goes wrong? And I say, we are the only IDSP that we're aware of. And that is a UK-based analyst team that is actually available should things go wrong. And that's not only in cases of the um, the digital scheme when you say facial biometrics may not match. We don't send it back and say, sorry, keep trying, keep trying, keep trying. We actually have a human that'll go, right, I can now see what's gone wrong. I'll deal with that and I'll get the result back. So that's just in the IDS people. But like I said, when you come back to that first question you asked uh, Gemma around, those three right-to-work processes that you can do, the digital, the online, and the in-person check, we support organizations with all three. And I think that is still quite a big differential. But because we have a UK-based team, we're never going to be the cheapest. But you know, it's that balance between cost and service. It's no good having these systems if actually only 70% actually flow through and the other 30% are not eligible or can't do something and have to go back to a HR hiring manager. We offer a solution that covers all options very effectively. And I would always say that's our biggest differential. So that's a bit about the good stuff, what's happening when it's going well. What have we seen, Gemma, in terms of businesses misinterpreting the IDSP, having problems with it, and what are the sort of practical issues that come out of that? In my experience, there's been two main uh, misinterpretations potentially by businesses. The first being that employers think that because the IDSP has done the initial digital verification, then if things go wrong, they just fall back on the IDSP and it's not their responsibility. And that's not the case at all. The employer retains ultimate responsibility for the right to work check, not the IDSP. And so I've often seen clients that completely rely on the IDSP's report that is sent through and don't then go on and do the verification themselves with the individual, which is often through a video call to check that that identity is the same. And if that employer has not done that verification step and subsequently goes on to hire and they are an illegal worker, then obviously that wouldn't be a valid statutory excuse to a civil penalty. That's certainly an area where I've seen some employers stumble over that responsibility section. But the other one is the idea that the IDSPs, including Trust ID, do do the checks in relation to the online and the manual as well as British and Irish nationals as well. And whilst absolutely they offer these services to help minimise the risk of fraud, the latest right to work guidance that came out has confirmed that actually if you are solely relying on an IDSP for either manual document checks or online right to work checks, then the employer won't establish a statutory excuse against a liability for a civil penalty in that front. Um, So they're kind of the two areas that I've seen most clients question, I suppose. I don't know, Tony, if you've got a a view on that second point about the fact that employers won't have the statutory excuse if you are used for that kind of manual or online check. How do you deal with that? So we've been offering share code and uh, in-person right-to-work checks as an IDVT well before the new regulations came into force in terms of IDSPs. So that's something we've been doing for years and um, the confusion definitely came out when the IDSP terminology was introduced on back of the digital scheme. And you're right, the confusion has been significant. 
when I speak to the Home Office around this issue, you know, it's always been clear that only the digital scheme, the new digital scheme, gives you any statutory excuse, as you say, as long as you do that last imposter check. There has never been the ability for an IDSP or an IDVT provider to provide a statutory excuse. And the way I describe it is that employers can outsource the functionality, they can't outsource the responsibility. So we ease their path to doing these checks in a far more efficient way. Clearly, they trust us to do that. The fact that we are certified IDSP for doing the scheme helps overcome that. But we are very, very clear and have to be very clear that using us does not give you a statutory excuse. However, you should never need a statutory excuse if you're using a reputable, proper organisation like ourselves. And the evidence has always been that if immigration enforcement turn up to our clients, they see it's got trust ID and they move on to the next organisation because they know that there's a, a significant effort has been deployed to make sure and stop illegal working, of which we do every day of the week for our clients. Interestingly, the other point that you raised, though, Gemma, which I think is now starting to grow in terms of issues and confusion in the market, and I have raised this with the Home Office, is this requirement for the imposter check on day one. So you use an IDSP for your Irish and UK in-day passports. And as you say, to get a statutory excuse, you must do that day one imposter check, either through video or when they turn up for work in person. The question is, do they need to keep a record of that check? The legislation and guidance clearly says it's not a requirement. But more and more clients are thinking, well, I'm going, if immigration enforcement do turn up, how am I going to prove? Because there is no requirement to keep a recording of that video call. And so more and more people are asking themselves the question. I think this is currently a business decision. I've asked for clarity from the Home Office, and they have been clear that you do not have to keep a record. But... If businesses feel they want to or should do because it gives them the comfort that that's a business decision. And we're certainly starting to see that increase potentially in terms of people asking us, how can we keep a record, even though it's not required, of that day one imposter check? Yeah, I agree. I've seen numerous clients coming to me and my recommendation on the basis that there is no current uh, expectation from the Home Office on that is to, in the majority of cases, screenshot the video call they're having and just add that with the check they've got onto the personnel file for the candidate. But like you absolutely say, the risk in reality of illegal working if you've gone through an IDSP is so low that hopefully that would never need to be questioned anyway. But yes, I've definitely seen clients asking how they can reassure themselves What's the other main area that we tend to see queries on in relation to carrying out the checks? I suppose the other main area I seem to get a lot of questions on are that employers are really quite, I would say, up to speed in practice with the outset of the right to work check. So before the candidate actually starts working, they do the right to work check and they do that compliantly. But if the individual has a time limited permission to work and it's going to need a follow up check, that's when I see things slightly falling apart at times. And I get quite a lot of queries with regards to clients diarising an expiry date and then ringing me and saying, it's expiring today. What am I meant to do? What's happening? And it's all very urgent and very last minute when it doesn't need to be. From a practical perspective, it's absolutely right that that diarised date is in the system. But it's also about adding reminders. And I think, you know, it's down to each organisation as to when those reminders are put in. 
I often say something along the lines of, you know, six weeks before, three weeks before and one week before, so that it's constantly reminding managers to check in with those employees and understand what is going on for them moving forward, what their plans are, if they've put new applications in, if they're planning to, so that they've got an idea of what is actually happening moving forward way in advance of that expiry date from a right to work perspective. And then it allows them to take the appropriate action. And what should employers do to keep compliant with following up right-to-work checks and making sure they're still valid? Yeah, I think in terms of making sure they're compliant, it's obviously diarising, reminding and, and taking action. But in terms of that action point, I think there's a majority of employers that aren't aware that actually if an existing employee has put in a application in time for a new visa and is either switching or is extending their visa, you know, they've got an outstanding application, haven't received a decision by the time their visa expires. That's okay, but they do need to do some actions in order to retain their statutory excuse. And so I think employers often aren't aware that they've got a 28-day grace period for existing employees, whereby as long as they are receiving confirmation from the individual that an in-time application has been made before their visa is expiring, such as, you know, home office acknowledgement letter or something of that nature, then they will have a 28-day period after that visa expires to continue to employ them. And that 28-day period is then used for the employer to follow what is the employer checking service. And it's that employer checking service that is used to then verify the fact that that individual has made an in-time application, which is currently outstanding. And then the individual organisation should receive a positive verification notice, which allows them to continue to employ them whilst that application is outstanding. We've talked a lot today about that statutory excuse. Um, I think it'd be good just to, as we bring this to a close, just to talk about actually what the exposure to risk is in financial terms for employing legal workers and also just how that statutory excuse works. What is it that the business is, is able to protect itself from? I suppose if employers haven't already heard, <laughs> then the civil penalty for a illegal worker is increasing dramatically from early 2024. We haven't yet got an official date, I don't believe, but from early 2024, those civil penalties, if it's found, um, are jumping in quite significant terms from what was £20,000 per illegal worker up to £60,000 per illegal worker. So basically a triple effect. Tony, were you surprised to hear that? No, I suppose because I do a lot of work alongside the home office and kind of understanding where their thinking is, uh, it didn't surprise me because I've obviously been ratcheting it up the kind of consequences of for employers of employing illegals for some years now. And I think people often focus in on the fine, but as well as that increasing, don't forget that behind that, there are significant disruptions to falling foul of an immigration enforcement visit, not just the potential for a fine if you cannot satisfy a statutory excuse. But actually, your name gets shared with other government agencies. So I did some work with immigration enforcement and some intelligence sharing around that. And, you know, so the details, you know, goes to HMRC. You then also got the potential now, of course, of criminal action. Should it be a deliberate and known kind of case, they can close on construction sites. They can close your site down for, for several days whilst they carry out their investigation. None of this used to be there. So, yeah, there's the ratcheting up of the fines, which didn't surprise me. But don't forget that there are other significant consequences of getting this wrong. Absolutely. And I completely agree with you. I think there's quite a lot of 
employers that don't realise the criminal aspect. And in the majority of the case, they are genuinely have no reasonable knowledge that that was ever an illegal worker. So the criminal doesn't come into play. But I think as soon as individuals are informed that actually that can involve unlimited fines and potentially, you know, prosecution, then that completely takes it to another level as well. Um, And in relation to the fine, I was shocked, there's no doubt, because it feels like a big hike. But when you look back and see that it hasn't actually increased for 10 years, you do think, okay, yeah, it did in a sense need to catch up. And so there's no doubt it's going to make employers be looking at their existing processes and systems, checking their compliance, looking at options with regards to IDSPs, how they can ensure that they are as protected as possible moving forward. So thank you very much to Gemma and to Tony for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Karen. Yes, and thank you for meeting. I think that is the main call for action today, isn't it? Is to say, go away, have a look at your systems, make sure they are compliant, make sure you've got that right structure in place. If it would help to have more support, realising that you've got those other options out there for support from IDSPs, but recognising that that's working in partnership with them, with the business, and not just handing over responsibility. Responsibility will always sit with the business. And just making sure that, you know, this is all fully understood. We often find that sometimes there are inadvertent mistakes that are made, that happens. You know, if you're in that scenario, do get in contact with us. We can help. There are things that can be done. The main thing is is to take action and not to just try to bury your head in the sand effectively. We also discussed some pricing in this episode for that IDSP work. Obviously, do get in contact directly with Trust ID if you want to know more about that. It, it's current at the time that we're recording this today, but do check in and make sure that's still the case if you want to go ahead with those kind of services. It's a complicated and difficult area, but hopefully we've helped today with a bit more understanding on what the options are. So thank you very much and thank you to Tony and Gemma. Mm-hmm.